Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss one of the most interesting results ever found in the psychological research of education, why pleasure maximization is a flawed model for human understanding. We go deep into a number of specific research examples, discuss the massive and counterintuitive difference between motivating top performers and motivating bottom performers, and much more with our incredible special guest, Dr. Dan Ariely. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 600,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy and more. A lot of our listeners are curious about how to organize and remember everything. I get tons of listener emails and comments asking me how to keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing guests and experts, and listening to tons of different podcasts. Because of that, we've created an awesome resource for you, and you can get it completely free by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. It's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. Again, to get it, just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Or you can go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we discussed how our guests went from being wildly unsuccessful, sleeping in a used van, and launched into launching a massive brand, the power of simple gratitude during the toughest challenges of our lives, the transformational superpowers that can change your life, and the massive perspective shift you can gain from two simple words with John Jacobs, the founder and chief creative optimist of Life is Good. If you want simple strategies to feel inspired and empowered, listen to that episode. Today, we have one of my favorite authors and an incredible psychology thinker on the show, Dr. Dan Ariely. Dan is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University and is the founder of the Center for Advanced Hindsight and is also the co-founder of BE Works. Dan's talks on TED have been watched over 7.8 million times. He's the author of Predictably Irrational and The Upside of Irrationality, both of which have become New York Times bestsellers. And he's the author of the upcoming book, Payoff, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivations. Dan, welcome to the Science of Success. Lovely to join you. Well, we're super excited to have you on here. With these compliments you gave me in the beginning, I'm more and more excited. And, and I even, even though I know you give all your guests great compliments, I believe you and I like you more now that you've given me such nice compliments. It's because I've read Predictably Irrational. There you go. Well, for listeners who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about your background. So I, in, in terms of kind of a scientific life, I was 
it's, it's a strange introduction. I was, I was badly burned when I was about 18 and I spent, I was burned with about 70% of my body and I spent about three years in hospital. And uh, life in hospital gave me lots of insights about lots of things about life. You know, I kind of put onto a bed for three years, just kind of observing life, but not being part of it and, and having, you know, burns and scars and challenges uh, after that. And, and beyond kind of just being in the hospital, it, it made me think about all kinds of aspects of, of life. And I, I became interested in experimental science. I became interested in kind of questioning and experimenting with our beliefs about all kinds of things uh, in life, about placebos and about the ways to remove bandages from burn patients and the question of uh, meaning and the question of what, what gets us to continue. And, and when I started doing experiments, I, I discovered there's a way to find out what's really going on. You know, most of life, we have intuitions, especially if you think about the workplace. Most of the things we know are not based on science. It's very hard to do experiments about what really motivates people. And so because, because of that, we just function based on our intuitions. We have beliefs about them. But if our intuitions are wrong, maybe we're setting up wrong incentives for ourselves, for others. We're setting up wrong environment systems and so on. So I became interested not just in unnecessary misery in hospital, but all kinds of ways in which we have wrong intuitions about the world. And out of good intentions, we're actually setting up things in the wrong, in the wrong way and trying to figure out what actually are the forces that, that change our behavior and how can we structure the world in a way that is more compatible with our human nature. So that dovetails really nicely into the next question I had. Tell me a little bit about the complexity of motivation. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we, we think that people have kind of a pleasure principle. And we think, oh, you know, people are just trying to maximize pleasure. That's, that's kind of one thought. And then we have another thought that says work is all about money. And all we need to do is to re-engineer the payment system. And it is shocking how much time people spend on trying to figure out exact bonuses and how to pay people. And there was a, there was a company in North Carolina recently that I met that they have a 16-point rating system to, for employees. And then they give bonuses that are around $3,000 based on this point system. But you know what happened is that somebody that gets 12.25 feels much worse compared to somebody who gets 12.5. And you know the difference in money is very small, but they're putting so much emphasis on that that people are just really miserable. So the two models people have for, for human life are trying to maximize pleasure and then that work is unpleasant, <laughs> that we don't like work and all we're doing it for the money but the people who we work for basically are trying to re-engineer our lives so that we will work as hard as they want us to work by, you know, like rats in a the maze. They put money on our path and we just try to maximize money. And as we try to max maximize money, we will do whatever they want us to do. But both of those things are basically wrong. The first thing about pleasure is actually, let, let me ask you, th think about your own lives and think about what are the kind of things that you're most interested in or most proud of or that are representing kind of things that you are you really want to accomplish so do you have some examples me personally yeah yeah i mean we could talk about this podcast as a great example of something that is you know for me very mission driven and something that i'm really passionate about and uh kind of sprung uh, totally by accident and uh, i've really enjoyed doing it Okay, so now, so let's take let's take this uh, this podcast, and you're saying that you're enjoying it. Now, now this joy of doing it, my guess is that there are very few times where you're uh, doing the podcast and just burst out laughing. You know, if we if we just thought about pleasure maximizing, we you would do things like sitting on the beach drinking mojitos or watching some sitcom. You know, that's how we think about pleasure: getting a massage or doing something like that. What, what you actually choose to do for this podcast is to do things that are, you wouldn't describe as pleasure from the outside, right? If an alien came and looked at how you work for this podcast, how you read, how you prepare, you know, trying to schedule different people, uh, waking up early, going to sleep late, an alien would not say, this is somebody who's just enjoying every moment. And it's because the joy that you're getting is not the momentary joy that you would get from drinking beer 
or watching a sitcom, it's a different kind of a joy. It's a joy, and you, you mentioned the word purpose. It's, it's a word, it's, it's a joy that comes from a feeling that you're doing something useful. And this usefulness is really interesting. It's not about you. It's about the fact that uh, other people get to listen and get to think differently and maybe get to do something differently. And you're kind of getting a joy by thinking that you're doing something to help other people uh, do something in a better in a better way. And all of those things don't fit with the pleasure maximizing rule because what you're, what you're really maximizing is something very different in, in life. You're maximizing a sense of meaning and a sense of control. You're feeling you're creating. You're feeling probably that you're getting better over time, you're improving, you're feeling that you're having an impact on other people and so on. So that's, that's the first thing that we need to recognize is that pleasure is a really complex thing. And the, the most extreme example for this is one of the most extreme examples is mountain climbing. When, when you read books of people who climb mountains, you would think it, they describe things that they like, but you know what? It's just shocking because all these books describe nothing but pain. It is difficult and painful and frostbites and injuries. And of course, it's a very dangerous sport as well. And you read those descriptions and you would think, my goodness, these people made a mistake. They would go up to the top of the mountain and they would recognize that this was a huge mistake with all the pain and misery and frostbite. And they will go down and they will say, never again. But you know what? They go down and then they do it again. Because it's not just about pleasure as defined by momentary enjoyment, it's about progress and conquering and meaning and so on. So that's, that's the first thing that we don't understand correctly. It's what, what are we trying to maximize? And yes, pleasure and joy are part of the stuff that we try to maximize, but it's certainly not all of it. And then the second thing is about payment. So, you know, people, people run these, run companies and they have all kinds of rules about how they divide the money and how they pay people. And we have, of course, overtime and we have bonuses and we have benefits and we have all kinds of things like that. And people don't understand how those things work. And now I'll, I'll give you one, one example. So, so this is an experiment we did with a big hotel chain. And this was with their call center. Okay, so these are people on the phone. Uh, they make people call them. They try to settle disagreements. They try to sell people hotel rooms, all kinds of things like that. And what's nice from an experimental perspective is that people in call centers, you can measure what they do. You can measure what the call was about. You can measure how fast they were. You can measure how effective they are. You can measure how productive they are. So we have a measure of productivity. And then they get the bonus of about a third of their salary is based on how good they perform. Okay, so that's, that's the setup. Now, we got data from this company, and we looked at the data, and what we found was that it was the same people, the same people, basically almost 100%, the same people get the big bonuses every time. So now, Matt, think about it for yourself for a second and say, okay, if it's the same people who get the, sa the, the big bonuses every time, why is it? What is causing some people to get bonuses and some not? So, so what would be some hypothesis that you would you would come up with? Like what, what could be the cause for this? It may be incorrect, but maybe the most straightforward hypothesis would be the idea that the best performers are getting the biggest bonuses. Okay. So that's one theory, right? The, the good people are getting bonuses, the bad people are not. That's, that's great. One, what, what else? What else could it be? That the people who are, have sort of befriended the management the best get the best bonuses? Okay. Some kind of nepotism. Yeah, that's another possibility. You could also think that some people love money and some people don't. And the people who love money would be more motivated and people who don't care so much about money wouldn't work so much. Uh, you could also think that it's random, that the first time people show up, they either randomly get the bonuses or not. And the people who get the bonuses learn how much, how wonderful they are and they really want to keep them. So it changes their motivation. And people who never get the bonus don't care, basically never learned how wonderful bonuses are. Anyway, there's lots of different theories to, that you can, can explain it. So we asked that company for them to give us their data every weekend for us to analyze it and for us to determine who will get their bonuses using our special algorithms. And, and what kind of algorithms do you think we tried? I have no idea. So we tried random. Okay, now, just to be clear, we didn't tell people that they were getting ba paid based on random algorithms. But if you, you see, if you have a particular algorithm to determine bonuses and you always use that algorithm, 
you can't test what will happen if you use a different algorithm. So we decided to do it randomly, and then we could compare you know, what happened in all kinds of cases. So we ran this experiment for six months, and we got the data every weekend. We calculated random bonuses. People got their bonuses on Monday. <coughs> they were announced, and, and we went on uh, for a while. And, and we did lots and lots of analysis of, on this data. But one of the things we looked at was to see when did the company have a higher return on investment when they rewarded the top employees or the bottom employees? So what do you think? I mean, it would seem like the maybe rewarding the highest, the top employees would have the best bonus, but perhaps the counterintuitive answer is that rewarding the lowest performers gave the biggest overall boost. That's right. And, and you know, given that you're talking to me, you, you probably expect that it will be some counterintuitive result, but, but that's exactly what we found. We found that the top employees did not change their performance when the bonuses went away, whereas the bottom employees improved their performance. Now, what's happening here? For a bonus to work, you need two things. You need for people to want the bonus, and then you need to, for them to be able to act on their desire to improve their performance. What happened was that the top employees were kind of already at the top of their game, right? They were, they were just, I mean, some people know how to talk on the phone. Some people have figured out how to work well. Some people, whatever the skills needed, some people just have it. And whether they acquired it or they had it in the beginning, and it doesn't matter if they get a bonus or not. So, so you know, I'm a university professor. If you paid me more or less, would I teach differently? I don't even know, right? If you told me, oh, you know, you, there's a bonus uh, coming up, do something differently, what, what would I do differently? I can, I can drink more coffee, I can try to stay more hours awake, I can try and... But I don't have a lot of ability to change my teaching. I'm already teaching to the best of my ability, what could I do differently? Whereas the people on the bottom part, they actually had a way to improve their performance, right? Those are people that could learn how to do things differently. They could uh, try harder. There was all kinds of things that they could. By the way, two things about this. The first thing is just to realize, you know, sometimes when we do field experiments, our recommendations come directly from the field experiment. Uh, In this case, we did not recommend to anybody to start paying people randomly, right? In fact, paying people randomly is incredibly demotivating. It's a terrible idea. And, And we also didn't recommend to that company to stop paying the top employees better because you also want to retain them. But what we told them is to say, look, these top employees are just good, solid performers. Bonuses don't change their behavior. Why don't you instead give them a promotion and give them a higher fixed salary? Right? So, so they'll end up getting the same amount of money, but let's not call it a bonus. A bonus is something that also increases worry. It's harder to plan on what you're going to, to get. A certainty is lower. Why don't you just give it to them? Because it's not changing their productivity, give it to them in a fixed salary. They will be uh, much better for it. And then you can take the bonuses and give it to the other people that actually need it as a, as a role for motivation. So that's the first thing. The, the, more, the bigger point, though, is that when we think about motivation, a, a lot of people use money as a hammer. And it's a very blunt tool, right? You can always say, oh, people don't perform. Let's just change their bonuses or give them points and, or do something like this. The, the problem, it's a very blunt tool and it's much, much better to actually go first and analyze what is the real barrier to good performance. And, and when you understand what's the barrier for good performance, then you can think about what's, what to do. And I'll tell you one other story about this. So, so at some point, there was a, a government of a different country, not of the U.S., that asked me to come and help them in uh, creating incentives for teachers in schools. And the Ministry of Finance in this, in this country had an idea, and their idea was to take the 10% best teachers in every school and give them a bonus. Right. So take the 10% of best teachers, and, and forget for a second how you determine it. Let's just assume that there's a good way to determine it, and their principal would determine it, and those 10% of the people would get a bonus. Okay, and that was their approach to try and improve the quality of education in the school. Now, when you think about it at first blush, it sounds reasonable. But, but then you have to say, okay, what is the theory that would suggest that this is a good solution? 
you basically have to say the following. You have to say, teachers really want money. They're not doing their best right now because we're not paying them enough, right? And they would do their best if we only had the bonus. So that's, that's kind of assumption number one. Teachers are lazy and they want money and we need to put more money in so they will be more interested in working hard. And then the second thing you need to say is that all teachers will think that they could get the bonus because if only the top 10% or only the top 20% think they could get the bonus, the rest of the people would not try harder. So everybody needs to believe that they could get the bonus and not just on year one, but, but over time. And you can ask yourself, how realistic are those assumptions? So let me tell you, so this is just assumptions. Here is something about data. One of the most interesting results ever in education was a result where they showed that one of the best ways to improve performance in schools is to give the top teachers time to teach the not-so-good teachers. Now, think about that. What, what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of a model for performance? It's not about not wanting. It's about not knowing. That, that model basically says, you know, some teachers have figured it out and some haven't. And the one that haven't figured it out it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they're not interested. It's because it's very hard to figure out how to teach. The feedback is random, stochastic, delayed. You have a very different mix of students. It's hard to learn how to do it well. Let's take the people who've kind of figured it out and let them get to help to help the other kids. And by the way, this, this other country where the Ministry of Finance want to give the top 10% of the teachers bonuses, what would happen if they did that? I don't think they would improve the quality of education, but the one thing they would do is they would eliminate any interest from the good teachers to help the not-so-good teachers because now they would try to basically keep their – it will become a competitive sport rather than a collaborative uh, endeavor. So, so the point is that when we pay people, it, it's not just simple paying, but we need to think more broadly about what is really holding people back. And then we need to think about what's the right compensation for that. Is it money? Is it knowledge? Is it a title? Is it a feeling of connection? Is it a sense of progress? Uh, what is it? And, and the science of, of motivation is actually incredibly interesting because if you wrote the motivation equation and you wrote the big M on the left and then you said equal and then you write money, of course, is one of the things that motivates people and maybe happiness. But then there's a long, long list of things. And over time, we're discovering more and more about the, the pride of creation and the feeling of progress and all of those elements that, that make our life so, so wonderful. I love that concept and the idea that it's much better to sort of analyze and focus on removing the barriers to good performance, as opposed to just adding additional incentives. Yeah. And it's, and it's easier, right? It's, it's easier to look uh, I mean, adding adding performance is adding motivation is good as well. But removing the things that are are harming people seem like the first easy step to do. And I think the story of the teachers really drives that point home very concretely. Yeah. And by the way, with with the no child left behind, so so you know one one of the things we we found in many experiments that I describe in predictably rational, but but also in in payoff is this thing about social norm and market norms. And the finding there was that sometimes we can add money and actually detract from the motivation. And one way to think about it is, imagine I asked you to do me a favor. I asked you to help me change the tire on my car, for example. And how likely would you be to do it? Condition and another setup is, I asked you to help me change the tire on my car, and I said, I'll pay you $5 for it. What will happen now to your motivation? So when we do experiments like this, we find that motivation actually goes down. When we get people to help us move sofas or do boring things or changing tires, we find that people are more willing to do it when we don't pay them. And when we offer a small amount of money, it actually decreases human, human motivation. And the reason it decreases motivation is that when you just help somebody, you say, I'm a good person. But when you get $5, you don't get the I'm a good person in the same way. The I'm the good person feeling goes away. Instead, you get the feeling, this is a job. And you say to yourself, I don't like working for $5. That's undervaluing my time. So, so this is what's called crowding out, where you can add motivation to the motivation mix, but actually decrease the overall motivation. 
And sadly, this is one of the things we've done in the U.S. with the No Child Left Behind policy. So again, think about teachers. And teachers join this uh, profession uh, not because they're trying to maximize their financial well-being, right? If, if somebody chose that profession to maximize their financial well-being, you wouldn't let them teach your kids because they say they clearly can't calculate anything. But they have a sense of uh, mission and they have a sense of contribution and uh, all kinds of other things like that. And all of a sudden you tell them, by the way, if the kids in your class do very well, we'll give you $400 and additional at the end of the year. And if they don't do well, we'll take some things away from the school. And, and all of those things are basically small potatoes right? on the individual level. And what happens? All of a sudden, teachers are saying, really? That's what I'm worth? This is all that, that you're interested in? That's, that's what, my, what, what we're all about? And, and as a consequence, they, they lose much of their motivation. Another thing, by the way, that happened with the No Child Left Behind policy is the loss of autonomy. So imagine a teacher that wants to teach different kids differently, right? And wants to teach different classes differently and uh, realizes that maybe uh, this is a better time for math and maybe we'll postpone English a little bit or, or do, something, do something else. But now, rather than having autonomy of what to do, they're kind of in a dictatorial positioning when they tell them exactly what they need to teach every day and they're becoming automatons who are just kind of executing. How motivating is this? It's terrible. And actually, I'm, I'm sorry, this is, this is going to be a really sad episode, but <laughs> I recently looked a little bit at physicians. You know that every year in the US, we have about 400 physicians who commit suicide. And physicians are reporting that the quality of their life is dramatically decreasing all the time. Why? Because we take people who are committed to healing and on one hand, we trust them with sharp knives and, you know, cutting our bodies open. But on the other hand, we don't trust them with not filling paperwork correctly or overcharging us, all kinds of things. And we're drowning them in paperwork and bureaucracy. And we're telling them that they can only see patients for 12 minutes or 15 minutes. And that they, and, and we, we're basically making them work like in, in a factory of patients where they have no, no judgment. And there's lots of medications that they want to prescribe, but the insurance company is not, is not letting them. Or there are treatments that they want to give, but the procedure of doing so and getting permission is too, is too cumbersome. So we're taking away basically their autonomy and we're making them little medical robots. And we say that this is, this is the constraint of your work. And, and the more we constrain teachers and doctors and so on, the less joy they can find in the work. And of course, uh, people who have the ability either leave and the people who don't leave are just very, very unhappy. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. 
That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. In the context of replacing social norms with market norms, I think it's predictably irrational where you tell the story of the uh, the daycare facility. Yes. Uh, could you could you share that anecdote briefly? Yeah. So this this was a story. Uh, it's an experiment in which you know generally what happened if you have kids, you know that you pick up your kids late from time to time, and you get a bad look from the teacher or the daycare center, and you feel guilty and you say sorry and you try very hard not to feel this bad again. So in this particular uh, daycare center, they decide to, with the help of, of uh, some economists, they decided to add a fine. They said, if you're late, we'll charge you $5 per hour. What happened? People started being really late. Why? Because imagine it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you have to, kid, to pick up your kid at 3.30. And you know, in the, in, before the fine was introduced, guilt would kind of get you to go there on time. But after they just said it's $5 an hour, people said, oh, you know, this $5 an hour, they can keep my kids for two hours, right? It's just, it's just babysitting. So what happened was that guilt went away and money was just a fine payment. Now, if they charged $100, right, what would happen? Uh, people would be on time, but they would also take their kids out of their daycare because from time to time they would miss it anyway. And then the fine would be too much. People would get really pissed off. So... What happened here was that the fine did not add to the feeling of feeling bad. It replaced it. And, and there was another thing with that study is that when they took the fine away, you would say, would guilt come back? And the answer was not until the following year. Right. So once you take a social relationship that is based on respect and, and guilt and reciprocity and so on, and you make it into a transactional relationship in which I pay you by the hour, it's hard to, to change the relationship back. It's hard to go back into a relationship of, of caring and uh, mutual benefits and long-term vision and so on. You talked earlier about the idea of joy, and I want to dig in a little bit more on that. Tell me about sort of why we have such a deep attachment to some of our own ideas and how we sort of source joy. <laughs> yeah. So so this is something we call the IKEA effect after the the Swedish furniture manufacturer. And one of the things we kind of first observed in our own behavior was that this was, uh, in my case, I have a chest of uh, drawers for my kids that I took me a really long time to assemble. Uh, the instructions were not very clear. I got parts in the wrong way. But But even though it was many years ago, I still carry it with me when I move around the country. And not only that, I look at that piece of furniture in a slightly more favorable than my other pieces of furniture. Like, you know, we spend an afternoon together uh, creating it. And the thought that, that we started, Mike Norton, Daniel Mochon, and I started looking at was, is the fact that you put more effort into something actually gets you to love it more? And, and the answer is yes. So we did the experiments with Lego and Bionicles, and we did it with origami. And, and what we found is that the more effort you put into something and the less clear the instructions are and the more complex it is, you might not enjoy the process as much, but you end up liking the outcome more. So think about something like a home-cooked meal compared to one in which somebody delivers it. Yes, it's more painful and more difficult and you put more effort into it, but the joy of it is higher, higher at the end. People don't understand this. This is not something we have a good intuition about. People, it's not as if you say, oh, I understand that if I'll assemble this myself, I like it more at the end. Then the other interesting thing is people don't understand that other people don't look at their own creation from the same perspective. So it's not as if I create something and 
I love it because I put so much effort into it, right? like one of my books. And then I think that everybody else should see how wonderful they are in the same way that I do. We, we're kind of blinded to other people's motivation, we, we are to their perspective. We, we think that everybody will see things in the same way that we do, but of course, other people see things from their own perspective and not, not from ours. So, so the key effect exists. We fall in love with what we do. We don't understand that other people don't see things in the same way. And that it's an interesting force because it's a good force and it's a not so good force. And it's a good force because by loving what we do, we can spend many hours doing what we do, right? So, so I do research in social science, behavioral economics, and I love what I do. And it causes me to spend many hours in the office and I work hard and I care about what I do. And it's the joy of loving what I do is by doing it, I love it more and it creates a, a virtuous cycle. The potential downside is that we get blinded to reality. And I think that's what happens to a lot of startups where people, not, not just startups, but in startups, it's kind of a good, it's a good example is that people have an idea uh, they fall in love with their idea. They think that everybody else would love their ideas. They they start working on it. They get some evidence that this is not really that popular with other people, that other people don't love it as much as they do. But they, they are so strong in their beliefs of how wonderful it is, is that they reject other people's, they reject the data. And they reject the data and they reject the data. And then sometimes they manage to, manage to pivot. Sometimes they they burn all their money uh, in the process and not and not get to it. But f so falling in love with, with our ideas and the, our labor and what we do is, is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it gets us to keep on being motivated. It's a curse because it gets us to be blinded to sometimes reality. I loved the origami story in the book. I thought that was, that was one of my favorite examples. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever played with origami? No, I'm horribly untalented at that. Yeah. So you know what? It turns out it doesn't matter because people in our experiments created terrible origami and nevertheless, they love them very much. So, so I think there is something uh, about, about creating something. Here's another thing. So, so Matt, you're, how old are you? 29. 29. So you grew up kind of in the digital world. Think about things in your life and think about what have you created from start to finish, Right. And, and this is not, you know, this is not a, it's not a test and it's not blaming. But, you know, people used to do more things. Like when I was a kid, we went to study pottery and we, we did woodwork. You know, I'm, I'm almost 50. And we did, we did all kinds of things. And then when we learned how to program, uh, you know, we wrote these stupid little programs that, that did very, very silly things or, you know, Right now, they look trivial, but we wrote the whole program, right? So I remember that my first Fortran program that did addition, right? But I wrote the whole thing. And as we move forward in life, we don't create many things ourselves. So this podcast is your creation, right? And of course, you, you get help from software and all kinds of other things, but, but it's your creation and it's yours from end to end. So or when I write a book, it's it's from cover to cover. Yes, lots of people help their editors and so on. But but it's my but it's my book. But but in life in general, we're having less and less of an opportunity to do to create something ourselves from scratch. And and when we do, we also have very easy substitutions. So you know, instead of making a meal, we can buy something ready made. Instead of creating furniture, we can get something from uh, IKEA. And, and I think something is, is missing there. I think that there's kind of a, a connection to the fruit of our labor that we're missing. And even in software, right? I mean, when was the last time somebody could write a whole piece of software by themselves? No, now, now people become, software is so amazing and, and so complex and has so many libraries. And, and everybody is writing a library or part of a library or part of the process. And, and it's wonderful it also doesn't give people the full feeling that there is something that is just that is just theirs. I think that the only area in life that is still kind of about an individual creation is probably art. That almost everything in art is is about one person 
doing everything from start start to finish, whereas in most other things, we just do parts of things rather than the whole thing. You know, it's funny because I I definitely am, am kind of a digital native and, and grew up with a lot of that. But when I was a very young child, uh, the internet really wasn't around and, and Legos were one of my favorite things. And I still sort of mm-hmm. think back about that and, and to some degree almost crave that desire to, you know, construct and build all kinds of unique creations. And I know you talk about Legos in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. And Legos are great. I mean, it does, somebody gives you the basic building blocks and you do the exact thing, the exact thing you want. It's, well, not exact, but you know, you try, you try to do something. I, and I agree with you that there's something about craving those experience of feeling that you have, you've done something. And, you know, I, I do Legos with my kids from time to time. And, and when you work with just Legos, it's a very different feeling that when you build a set with instructions, right? So when you have, I don't know, the Star Wars set of something and, and you have this instruction, the instructions are very complex and you have some joy because the, the piece you're creating is, is beautiful and the instructions, you know, you manage to overcome the challenges of understanding the instructions. So it, it, it does have some other joy to it, but it doesn't feel that you've created it in the same way. You've kind of followed the instruction that somebody else gave you, yes, very successfully, but it doesn't feel that it's yours in the same way. So think about kind of the hesitation before you break something apart or your desire to build a piece of Lego and, and keep it untouched for a while. When you do something from a set, ah, you finished it, it's over. You don't want to keep it. But when you do something without instruction that is more you, now taking it apart is a bit more painful you're, break, you're taking something away from yourself uh, while doing so. It's not just, just, not just breaking a piece of Lego. So changing gears slightly, but really kind of also getting into the meat of this to some degree, we talked about why money and pleasure were not great models to sort of understand the concept of motivation. What are some of the deeper, more intangible emotional forces that do underpin motivation? So, you know, it, it, it's not that money is not part of it it is part of it and it's not as if joy is not part of it but it is part of it it's just not the whole the whole picture so you know there's lots of things about about motivation and you can just kind of think about your own experiences to kind of try to figure out what are some of the some of the elements so here is here is another example so i was in a, in san francisco not too long ago and i met with a very nice startup and after talking about what they were doing, which was very interesting, I asked them how late do they stay in the office. And they told me that the night before they stayed until 1 a.m. And, and we talked about, about that. And here is what happened. One of the people in the team needed to do something for, for a deadline. And they were the only people in the team that needed to, to stay until late. Everybody else in the team stayed with them. And I talked, to, I talked to them and I said, look, how was the phone call when you called and told your significant other that you're going to stay late in the office? And they said it was no problem. He said they called their significant other and they said, you know, Hannah is, is behind a project. She needs to stay uh, over until late and I'm staying uh, with her to help her finish that, uh, that project. And then I asked them, what would happen if it was your project that was, that was late and you had to stay late in the office? How would your significant other... Uh, react to that and they all said that the significant other would have said something like this is terrible you should have started on this early I, this is unacceptable and you can't you know you can't do this so here was a case where for their own project they couldn't have stayed late but staying late for a friend was more justified in their own eyes and in their significant other eyes so this is one example that says that our caring about work is often about caring about the people that we work with. And when we care more about the people that we work with, through them, we care more about work as well. And actually, I'll give you one more story about this in, in a different domain. So I do lots of experiments on dishonesty where I tempt people to steal money from me and I see how much money they steal and under what conditions. So in, in one type of experiment, we give people a die. It's a six-sided die and we get people to roll the die and we say, look, roll the die 
and we'll pay you whatever it comes up on. If it comes on six, we'll give you six dollars, five, five, and so on. But we tell them you can get paid based on the top side of the die or the bottom. Top or bottom, you decide, but don't tell us. So you get the die, and I say, please think top or bottom. You think to yourself top or bottom. You roll the die, and let's say it came up with five on the bottom and two on the top. And now I say, okay, what did you pick? Now, if you picked bottom, you say bottom, and you get $5. If you pick top, you have a dilemma. You say the truth, top, and get $2. Or do you change your mind? You say bottom, and you get $5. And people do this 20 times. And every time they think to themselves top or bottom, they roll the die, they write down what it came up with, and then they say what they chose and so on. And, and what we find when people do this 20 times is that people are uh, extra lucky. Of course, I don't mean lucky. I mean that people are cheating. Not cheating a lot, but cheating a little bit. Now, now in this one experiment, we got people to sit next to their significant other. So, Matt, you're married, right? I am. Okay. So imagine that you're rolling the die and you're writing down what the die came up in and what you chose and your significant other is sitting next to you. And, and this, your significant other doesn't know what, what's going in your brain if you chose up or down, but they see if you're extra lucky or not. What do you think would happen? Would you cheat more, the same, less if they sit next to you? I would assume people definitely cheat less. That's what most people assume, but what we find in the experiment is that people cheat more. And why do they cheat more? Let me tell you about another experiment and we'll come back to this. In another experiment, we do the same thing, but people don't make the money for themselves. In one condition, it, the money goes to them. In a second condition, they pick a charity and all the money they make go to that charity. What happened when the money goes to charity? People cheat more. But in that experiment, we also connected people to a lie detector. And we measured how good is the lie detector detecting dishonesty. And when people lie for themselves, the lie detector detects dishonesty quite, quite well. Not perfectly, but quite well. When people lie for a charity, the lie detector doesn't work. People cheat more, but the lie detector doesn't work. Why? Because the lie detector works on attention. I feel I want more money, but I feel bad about it. I want more money, but I feel bad about it. But if the money goes to charity, we don't feel bad about it. All of a sudden, we feel good. This is, by the way, why politicians feel so comfortable lying so much because it's, they can convince themselves that it's for our good, the good of the country. Now, let's go back to this experiment. You, you sit there, there, your significant other is sitting next to you. All of a sudden, you think to yourself, oh, and you don't think it consciously, but it's, you're basically saying, I'm not just cheating for myself, I'm cheating for the whole family. And with that, people become more free to cheat. And, and this is not just about the significant other. It's also about for the good of the company, for people who work with you, all kinds of things like this is justified. So all of this is to say that one of the many forces that motivate us is the caring we have for the company. And that force works for good because we care more. It also sometimes has negative effect because we might cheat some more. And the caring for the people that we, that we work with. And of course, you know, we can go on and on about all kinds of other forces, but this is, these are just some examples for the things that end up mattering a lot for our motivation. One other concept that I loved from Payoff was the idea of symbolic immortality. Could you talk briefly about that concept? Sure. So, you know, at some point you die, and some people believe in the afterlife, and, and let's forget about those people for now. Let's think about just the people who don't believe in an afterlife. And the question is, do people, even, even if they're going to die and they don't believe that there's anything after death, do they still care about how people would remember them? And do they still care about their inheritance and not, not financial, but their contribution and their impact? And we find that the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, the people who believe in the afterlife and don't believe in the afterlife don't, it doesn't matter to what kind of things people are willing to do to be remembered in, in a good way. And we've looked at things like funerals and how people spend on that. We've looked at things like wills and how people set up their wills. So for example, people are, people are trying in their wills to settle scores and to make amends. I mean, you're, you're dead already. Like, why, why is it important and why don't you do it when you're still alive? But the afterlife, the fact that even after people die, 
they still care we still we still care about our reputation and how people think about us and so on i think i think it's kind of the extreme case showing how not everything is about material goods because you know no matter no matter what theory you have about the afterlife whatever material goods you have don't don't really matter once you die but the fact that we care about how people remember us think about us what scores we have what we've left what will happen with our possessions all of those it's it's an indicator of the kind of things that get us to be motivated not just as we get close to dead or dead but throughout our lives well dan i absolutely loved the book payoff and i know that listeners are really going to enjoy it there's so many things that we didn't get to talk about today from the book that i really really enjoyed i'm curious where can people find you and the book online so I have a website, uh, danarielli.com, D-A-N-A-R-I-E-L-Y.com. And the book should be on Amazon and Barnes Noble and all the usual suspects. And then on my website, I have other information and videos and, and so on. Awesome. And again, the book is called Payoff, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivations. Dan, thanks again. We loved having you on The Science of Success. Thanks to you, and it was great, and looking forward to continuing this another time. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you and I read and respond to every listener email. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. Lastly, I get a ton of listeners asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we create an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.